and this is Fill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. So I'm going to start this one with a quick personal story. So my husband's family has a cabin up in Crestline, which is just above Lake Gregory, just a couple miles outside of Lake Arrowhead. It's gorgeous up there. It's quiet. Uh, We go up there usually when we want to get away from our schedules. We unplug a bit. Gives us a little chance of a slowdown. So a few years ago, we went up there for New Year's with some friends. Uh, And when I say unplugged, I really do mean unplugged. There's zero Wi-Fi. We don't have cell service up there in the house. So our little bits of technology are pretty archaic. So there's the CD player up there, radio combo. We usually listen to the Angels games. Uh, when we're inside the house, upstairs cooking. And then downstairs, there's a TV. And it used to be, now it's a much better TV than it was, but it used to be this old TV-VCR combo unit uh, from, like, the 90s. And uh, there was a box downstairs with a couple of Disney movies, and they were tapes. I know, tapes. Uh, They had those rewinders, too. So, like, you put it in the rewinder, it goes all the way back to the beginning instead of, like, doing that in the VCR. I know all of you kids have zero clue what I'm talking about at this point. Uh, unless you've got, like, old units at grandparents' houses and stuff. But, man, the images are warped. It's They're terrible. But at that point, like, that's all you have. That's what you get. Um, so that was kind of wild. But anyway, we're up there. It wasn't snowing yet. It was definitely already below freezing, though. Uh, my husband and my friend's husband had been outside cooking ribs all day. And they were, like, the best ribs you've ever had in your life. So good. Uh, But because it was cold, it was taking hours and hours and hours to get any kind of smoke ring. But my friend and I, we were down in in the downstairs area of the house. She'd been up there. uh, This was the first time for her, so she had some altitude sickness, which was kind of a bummer. Um, So then, you know, there's nothing really to do there. So I I walk over to the bookshelf, and I take a look at the books, and I realize that there's a book on there that I'd heard of. And so Toni Morrison's not new to me. I read Toni Morrison in high school Uh, I'd been exposed to The Bluest Eye, I'd read Jazz, and I knew of Beloved, but I hadn't read it myself. I know her style, so I kind of knew what I was getting into, but not really. So contrary to kind of what seems obviously to be the case for me as an English teacher, I honestly, reading isn't something I normally just do. It's not like, I'm bored, what should I do? Ah, read. That's not generally my answer. Um, And it's not that I don't like to read, I do. I read a lot of stuff, but I'm generally pretty picky about my fiction. And I'm the kind of person that reads usually for some kind of utility. And that utility generally isn't enjoyment of fiction stories. It's philosophical for me, which obviously, of course, it is. So it's kind of a strange situation here. Me picking up this book in this unplugged cabin with not much else to do. So I started Beloved. I opened it up. I read it probably about 10 o'clock at night. I did not put this thing down until about 4 or 5 in the morning. So I read it straight through. It was a long night. Totally worth it, though. I just couldn't put it down. I'm also not generally a super emotional person. Alright, well, that might be a lie. I am an emotional person, but I'm pretty good at being stoic about it, at least in public. Uh, Books generally don't make me emotional, though. Uh, The last time a book really dug into me was War and Peace, which if you haven't read it, holy cow, it's 1,200 pages of just dense history, tons of family stories. There's one piece in that where the girl Natasha, who's married to a guy named Bolkonsky, there's like 500 pages in between like all of the transgressions of their marriage. And once you finally get that release, man, like that one just kills me. But Beloved, even when I read it now, over and over again as I teach it year to year, it just wrecks me. 
I know that's kind of a tough thing to do to a class of 16 and 17 year olds at the end of the school year. But after we spent all this time shaking our fists at the man for oppressing the lower and middle classes, we find ourselves in this solidarity with that feeling, we can thank Fight Club for it, it just becomes a good sober reminder of real oppression. And maybe we get a little bit of the discussion here of the difficulty in judging other people's actions from a place of incongruity. With this one, you just can't understand the situation. Well, at least that's the hope that you can't. There should hopefully not be too many analogous situations today in this circumstance that's close to the burden here. It's just the burden of the past that continues to haunt us, and towards which we continue to have some responsibility. So, for the next several weeks of this series, we'll be working our way through a few chapters a week of Beloved, while also connecting to the specifics of some of the important movements and thinkers and ideas in the American literary and philosophical traditions, particularly of modernity and postmodernity. This week, we're looking at the first four chapters of Beloved in conjunction with one of my favorite poems to teach called The Unknown Citizen by W.H. Auden. It might actually even be the one poem I've been teaching the longest and most consistently. So, as a reminder, the poem goes, 2JS07M378. This marble monument is erected by the state. He was found by the Bureau of Statistics to be one against whom there was no official complaint, and all the reports on his conduct agree that in the modern sense of an old-fashioned word, he was a saint, for in everything he did, he served the greater community. Except for the war till the day he retired, he worked in a factory and never got fired, but satisfied his employer, Fudge Motors, Inc. Yet he wasn't a scab or odd in his views, for his union reports that he paid his dues are reports on his union shows it was sound, and our social psychology workers found that he was popular with his mates and liked to drink. The press are convinced that he bought a paper every day and that his reactions to advertisements were normal in every way. Policies taken out in his name prove that he was fully insured, and his health card shows that he was once in a hospital but left it cured. Both producers' research and high-grade living declare that he was fully sensible to the advantages of the installment plan, and had everything necessary to the modern man, a phonograph, a radio, a car, and a frigidaire. Our researchers into public opinion are content that he held the proper opinions for the time of year. When there was peace, he was for peace, and when there was war, he went. He was married and added five children to the population, which our eugenist says was the right number for a parent of his generation, and our teachers report that he never interfered with their education. Was he free? Was he happy? The question is absurd. Had anything been wrong, we should certainly have heard. This poem might be all the more fascinating today in the era of technological privacy concerns. Statistics are not new in measuring human patterns. In this one, you see reference to all kinds of norms, political opinions, family choices, purchasing, credit, professional. Today, we compound this because everything we do is so public, especially on the internet. Um, now we're tracked by types of accounts we create, our behaviors when we log in, when we buy stuff, when we search for, what kinds of shows we watch. Hell, just the other day I was talking in my house about something and three minutes later, no joke, I open up Instagram and there were ads for it. Just everywhere. I've turned off Siri on my phone for a lot of the same reasons. There's something kind of a perspective of Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec in this, although I'm nowhere near as extreme in, in my measures of this. Uh, but I, I, his voice is an, it's an empathetic one. It definitely feels a little big brothery these days. 
But the poem's interest isn't in the statistical information in and of itself. We subject ourselves, even willingly in a lot of ways, to being data points for analysis, and most of the time it's pretty helpful. Uh, I've spent the last several minutes a day tracking the data of this coronavirus outbreak. I watch case numbers, uh, any of the death rates changing for our country as a whole. I've looked at certain patterns for our state and other states, uh, especially as different policy decisions are being made. It's really fascinating, despite the horrible uncertainty we're actually living through right now. But anyway, the real interest in this poem lies in the complete lack of real individuality that's shown here as J.S., which is pretty clearly one of those names like John Smith that are meant to stand for every man, and the fact that his choices really say nothing about him. And yet, as Auden poignantly gives there at the end of the poem, was he free? Was he happy? The question is absurd. Had anything been wrong, we should certainly have heard from this speaker who's likely a government official or the voice of the government at large or society at large. He willingly believes that any of these externalized data points attest for something so incredibly subjective as someone's personal freedom and happiness. Of course, Auden's being sarcastic here. This is meant to feel sarcastic. But happiness is a really difficult term in itself. There are a variety of different philosophical views for interpreting that concept, though this poem likely operates with one in particular. In fact, in looking at things that are assessed here by the government as important factors to that kind of determination, you see a bit of hedonistic calculus happening here, a la John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham's utilitarianism. In this system, ethicality is connected to pleasure. In fact, the chief aim of ethical decision-making is happiness, and by happiness they mean something akin to the pleasure-pain principle, the maximization of pleasures, the mitigation or elimination of pains. Utilitarianism goes a slightly different route in, in this than maybe the Epicureans, in that the goal isn't simply to maximize it strictly for the self, but for the greatest number, which is what kind of makes this a good politically expedient moral philosophy and why a lot of American discussion, personal and social decision making, can be explained through this model. It's highly influential, and in a lot of ways very rational and practical. The problem, though, is that utilitarianism doesn't necessarily prescribe a point at which certain considerations are either too shallow or too cumbersome. For example, a really shallow hedonic calculus would look at the intensity of a pleasure, the duration of a pleasure, and the purity of a pleasure. In other words, how intense the pleasure will be, and for how long, uh, how likely negative pains will accompany it. Those get weighed and balanced on a pro-con scale, and boom, action dictated. But there are other considerations that are outlined by Mill and Bentham in their philosophies. Things like propinquity, or how soon the pleasure will likely occur. Fecundity, the likelihood that an action taken will result in the consequences of the perceived pleasure, and will then lead to other future pleasures. And extent, the effect of the action on the pleasures and pains of other people. That one alone could have us thinking about our one immediate action endlessly. It's hard to rationalize and even harder to actually know the way in which my actions will butterfly effect into the future. There's something kind of chaos theory in that. But even less clear is the way in which my seemingly objectively measured choice of action will affect the subjective perceptions of pleasure and pain for anyone else, let alone everyone else. There's a fine line here. At what point do I stop caring about potential hypothetical future effects of my current action so that I can actually do the action? Or, 
How far into the depths of other people's subjectivity do I account for my actions effect? Couple this with other perceptions of happiness, like the classical Greek Seodaimonia, where happiness is a worthwhile life, that it is not emotionally driven by pleasure at all, but rather by a fulfilling purpose in the life of pleasure and politics and intellect. And this requires a life of habitually practiced virtue that often requires tons of self-denial that isn't compatible to the same extent here with utilitarianism. And now, all of a sudden, the question being asked in Auden's poem by the speaker is itself absurd. Happiness cannot be measured at all by these choices, which are statistically connected or disconnected from the subjectivity of the actor. What if he bought a Frigidaire simply because everyone on his block did and he actually came to hate the machine? Ask Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman about this. What if he held those political opinions because he was stuck in a cave staring at shadows never thinking for himself? The question about freedom then becomes an obvious and resounding no. But then, we have to get into discussions about freedom in general. Can one who conforms to the norms of society ever be considered free? Well, we have to think on a few levels with this. Being ostracized by society makes freedom quite difficult in some ways, and maybe liberating in others. We'll have to come back to this in the discussion further into the series, as well as through the conception of freedom that we encounter throughout Beloved. So, once upon a time, I wanted to be a fiction writer. I've come to recognize that maybe that's not really the right dream for me, but I always reasoned that if I was going to do so, I would publish in my maiden name so I could be right before Toni Morrison on the bookshelves. Well, I don't really have a whole lot of talent or desire anymore for fiction, so that dream's been kind of tempered. But there's still good reason for the love I have for Toni Morrison. I've absolutely loved everything of hers I've read. And like I said earlier, this one in particular. Beloved in about the quickest, non-spoilerish way I possibly can is about a woman named Seath who was originally a slave on a plantation called Sweet Home, which was at that point owned by an older couple, but then eventually becomes managed by a man, a cruel man, named Schoolteacher and his equally cruel nephews. While slavery at the time obviously is not a good life, it was at least in the beginning more tolerable and less violent for the people, the slaves that were on Sweet Home. Ultimately, many of the slaves at Sweet Home fly away to freedom. Uh, at the beginning of the novel, Seath is currently living at the House 124. It's in free territory somewhere on the outskirts of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, that's at one point was a halfway house for those that were escaping slavery. So that's how they come to, to this house. She now lives there with her daughter, Denver. Um, there really are two competing storylines that happen in this text. They're not necessarily competing in the sense that they're providing separate or different or hypocritical narratives, uh, but competing in the sense that they compete for the reader's attention. The first is the real-time narrative in which Seath is trying to currently get on with her life despite the repression of her past, um, some kind of life that she has with this man, Paul D., and her daughter, Denver. But there are barriers. The town is afraid of 124. No one comes near. Seath and her daughter live basically in social isolation for reasons that you don't entirely understand at the beginning as readers. The second narrative is the, is the past as it escapes her oppression to haunt various aspects of the present. There's a lack of linear chronology in this one, well, is what leaves readers in a kind of a confusion that spurs us onwards as we uncover the compelling psychological turns that build in intensity with the timelessness of our own consciousness here. 
Toni Morrison begins the book, though, with her famous dedication line, 60 million and more. The number evokes for many the number 6 million, which is easily recognizable as the number of Jewish people killed in concentration camps during the Holocaust. But here, Morrison likely references the estimated number of deaths during the Atlantic slave trade, the more signifying the generational fallout after effects of slavery that run incomprehensibly deep, or maybe the more signifies a wider net of all victims who have or will suffer brutality. While there are many professional, uh, professionals, professors, critics who have tried to make various connections here uh, to probably falsely justify that Morrison is claiming that slavery was more brutal than the Holocaust, uh, which is to be fair, not exactly necessary to argue. Suffering is bad. The numbers are huge enough that they escape any kind of concretizing for us. This is why those kids' games at birthday parties are fun and successful. You put a huge jar of hundreds of candies in it, uh, some poor mom spent hours counting them, and now you have guests at your party. Guess how many are there? The closest guest wins the jar. Numbers past a certain point for us are just basically impossible for us to visualize. The only way I get past the handful is to start thinking for me in domino tiles, and it's a good thing that we play double 15s or I'd be completely at a loss for much. So 60 million and more doesn't need to draw any comparisons for who wins at the most cruel event in history. They're all cruel, equally cruel, if we're talking about human dignity. Today, we're not dealing with the trolley problem. I've given that enough consideration already. But dignity, human dignity, is qualitative. It's not quantitative. So all suffering on this is equally bad. We can still, though, raise the questions. How do we determine how important any given historical event is if we're not talking about it quantitatively? Can such traumatic events as these be measured? How should we remember the dead? There's a great little essay by philosopher Paul Ricoeur called Memory and Forgetting. Philosophies he expounds on in many volumes of his works. So this is not a new concept. It's not even unique to this particular article. In it, he talks about the role of memory in a social, cultural, and political sense. And for him, generational memory is itself an ethical concern in that we have a duty to remember events, but not just remember them in any fashion, but to remember them properly and with ethical considerations of those who are part of that historical memory firsthand. When I first read the article myself, uh, I was a master's student at LMU. I, one, fell in love with the philosophies of Paul Ricoeur and especially this essay. But two, I had been teaching for about a year and a half and we just recently had a visit by Holocaust survivors for some kind of special assembly at our school. I remember thinking how rare this experience would be in just a matter of a few years. Uh, as we're now so temporally distanced from an event like that, no one currently living soon will have first-hand experience of that event. It wasn't, though, until I started teaching this essay in my philosophy classes, though, that my students, uh, that I realized in talking to my students that I was kind of in a similar circumstance myself. Here I was in the middle of September talking to my students about 9-11, and none of them were alive in 2001, which is crazy to me. Aside from making me feel obviously old in that moment, I was a sophomore in high school at the time of 9-11. Uh, it made me really truly understand what Recur's point is here. Here, now as someone who had lived through the event, albeit uh, obviously at a major distance as a Californian, I'd never been to the East Coast until just January of last year, it was my responsibility, though, to ensure that my students learned something from the experience that I had, even though it was secondhand. 
And like any narrative, my own choices and how I told the story of that day, of my experience and what importance the event held for my own experience, for my community's experience, for the national experience I could attest to, the choices necessarily made it an ethical duty. So Toni Morrison, too, is telling the story of Seeds, whether fictional or based on real historical events of an individual or a collection of individual experiences that did or were likely to have happened to a real person, um, with the necessity of ethical duty here. Because of the historical reality of slavery, Morrison has duty here to provide an ethical account of the real suffering of the people of the event, and to do so in a way that our generational consciousness performs further informed ethical acts as a result of this second hand, or even maybe third hand in this instance, since Morrison, I don't think, obviously wasn't a slave herself, uh, of this experience. She follows this with a dedication line, uh, with an epigraph in which she references the biblical verse Romans 9.25. I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not my beloved. Some light context here. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, who was born a wealthy Roman citizen, uh, but he was to a devout Jewish family. Because he was fluent in multiple languages of the time, specifically Greek, uh, the Greek culture and the philosophy of the time, uh, he was exposed to things like Stoicism, and so he began his career, his religious career, as an Orthodox Pharisee. While he was studying, legend has it, uh, because he was very against the rise of Christianity as an Orthodox Pharisee, uh, then it is said he was approached by Jesus on the way into Syria, and it became then his mission to expand the church through particularly Gentiles, while also helping his fellow Jewish population recognize the New Covenant. The letters were given in Romans, uh, are attributed to his third missionary journey from Corinth. So here he's appealing to Rome, hoping to establish contact with the Roman church uh, from early missions that he'd been on. 925 is actually, in uh, Paul's letter, a reference to Hosea 2.23 of the Old Testament, which teaches that the Gentiles could be viewed then as vessels of mercy, bringing them to importance in the old faith, not just simply as Israelites alone. This national call to repentance provides redemption for everybody, even those perceived as undeserving. File this currently into the back of your brain or into your notes for now, and hold on to that for later, uh, as the story will kind of reveal the true depth of that, uh, specifically the gift of grace and of mercy. So chapter one essentially kind of starts and ends in the same place or the same moment. There's some magical realism in this text. It's overlaid by the spiritual hauntings of this ghost baby, which even if you dismiss it as a projection or some metaphorical situation of Seath's psyche, it still really provides an important reflection and meaning. It's given that people stay away from 124 and the motive of running gets its start. If a Negro got legs, he ought to use them. Sit down too long, somebody will figure out a way to tie him up. This is evidenced by the running of her own to 124 and of those from 124, including the two sons who have since disappeared as a result, she says of the ghost baby's torment. There are two major images that run through the first chapter. First is the headstone that Seath continually recalls throughout the text in which the word beloved, you know, the namesake, is fixed. Um, think dearly beloved, the typical beginnings of religious uh, ceremonies, formal ceremonies, things like funerals. The second is that of trees. Those, uh, this here, they have several uses. She often describes Sweet Home for its trees, recognizing the hellishness of the setting, 
though it's not in the typical way we would depict hell, uh, not really, you know, Dante's Inferno where torture's present at every turn and it's really clear and obvious and in your face, but more to our understanding of Lucifer a la Milton's Paradise Lost, the beautiful disguised uh, that manipulates and offers false promises. Of Sweet Home, she says, and if you look at the name, it makes perfect sense, Sweet Home, she says, It never looked as terrible as it was, and it made her wonder if hell was a pretty place too, fire and brimstone all right, but hidden in lacy groves, boys hanging from the most beautiful sycamores in the world. It shamed her, remembering the wonderful sowing trees rather than the boys. Try as she might to make it otherwise, the sycamores beat out the children every time, and she could not forgive her memory for that. So here we return to the other part of Ricoeur's philosophy, the forgetting, which she shames herself for. Uh, but we have to recognize as a mechanism here of self-preservation. To remember the pain of these kinds of traumatic events, to feel them as real and as deeply as they were felt in the moment of historicity, makes it actually impossible to remember the event. Without the forgetting, the lesson, the meaning cannot be derived and thus passed on as an ethical duty to subsequent generations. Throughout the book, Steve becomes both a master and the dynamics of memory and forgetting. And honestly, in a lot of ways, it's victim, because while she exists in the present, she hardly lives. I can't help but think in this, back to the song by Billie Holiday, Strange Fruit. Southern trees bear strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. She recorded the piece in 1939, and while she was already a few years into her career pretty popular, this piece, as you can imagine, was incredibly provocative. Uh, many of the recording companies that she worked with would not at all even allow her to record it. Uh, some of the nightclubs that she frequented pretty much forbid her from performing it. And some even think that this protest anthem of hers was somehow inadvertently connected to her untimely death. But what a piece. Seed's description in this book here really evokes that one for me. The second tree image comes importantly at the end of the chapter. After Paul D., who was another escaped slave of Sweet Home, who knew her and her husband at the time, then and there, uh, he finds himself on the doorstep of 124 and thus back in her life, but he brings the past with him. It's in spite of herself and probably because of him that she often has to contend with a lot of those repressed memories she's forgotten. Uh, but actually, probably she's just remembered them wrongly. It is also because of Paul D. that we have come to get glimpses that there's a second narrative that's going to illuminate this first present one. She describes to him the tree of her own. I got a tree on my back and a haunt in my house and nothing between but the daughter I'm holding in my arms. In chapter two, we get a little bit more detail about the significance of this metaphorical tree that's on her back. 
and the wrought iron maze which he explored in the kitchen like a gold miner pawing through pay dirt was in fact a revolting clump of scars. Not a tree, as she had said. Maybe shaped like one, but nothing like a tree he knew because trees were inviting, things you could trust and be near. Talk to if you wanted to, as he frequently did since way back when he took the midday meal in the fields of Sweet Home. Always in the same place if he could, and choosing the place had been hard because Sweet Home had more pretty trees than any farm around. Now there was a man, and that was a tree. Himself lying in the bed, and the tree lying next to him didn't compare. The physical manifestations of trauma are often coupled with mental manifestations here, especially in the violence of the physical torture that is often accompanied by slavery. And while both Sleeve and Paul D. shared that commonality of the experience and that they both came from Sweet Home and dealt with a lot of the same tendencies, it becomes pretty apparent that somehow there's still a complete and utter isolation that results in even their moments of intimacy. In some ways, this is the natural result of a system that often used isolation as a tactic for breaking down personal will and spirit, but it might also be a conscious or even unconscious choice in the memory and forgetting exercise of repression that's necessary for seed to continue to exist in any present state, uh, in any functional present state at least. Seed describes time in chapter 3. It's hard for me to believe in it. Some things go, pass on. Some things just stay. I used to think it was my memory. You know, some things you forget, other things you never do. But it's not. Places, places are still there. If a house burns down, it's gone, but the place, the picture of it, stays. And not just in my memory, but out there in the world. What I remember is a picture floating around out there, outside my head. I mean, even if I don't think it, even if I die, the picture of what I did or knew or saw is still out there, right in the place where it happened. It's a really interesting comment on the permanence of memory and its disconnection from the individual, but, but how? Does this take a voice, a vision, a language to repeat, and even then, isn't that language in a way incomplete? She continues, Somehow you'd be walking down the road and you hear something or see something going on, so clear. And you think it's you thinking it up, a thought picture, but no. It's when you bump into a memory that belongs to somebody else. Where I was before I came here, that place is real. It's never going away. Even if the whole farm, every tree and grass blade of it dies, the picture is still there. And what's more, if you go there, you who was never there, if you go there and stand in the place where it was, it will happen again. It will be there for you, waiting for you. Here lies the collective historical consciousness that comes with the gravity of an event of magnitude, one which lies either beyond the scope of normal day-to-day -day operations of the mundane, or a horrific event, or even, a, uh, I imagine, for events of extreme happiness or happy importance also. I've never personally stood in such a place myself, but I'd imagine that anyone standing in the middle of a gas chamber or a barrack in Auschwitz might understand this better than I can right now. So for those of you who have visited these kinds of historical sites where we've placed deep historical collective social importance on the reality of those events in those exact places, I would imagine you fully understand the feeling of the significance and the gravity of such a collective rememory as Seed's calling it here, even if you were not there yourselves. However, um, 
you've been furnished with the detail to be able to recall or at least build that moment for your own realities, whether it's through education or the stories of your own um, families or communities. Uh, and so these moments here are important for us, even at second hand, and you feel the same gravity, or at least um, a diminished but still potent gravity. These moments are intensely emotional. Even if they come initially from an instance of intellect, a secondhand memory, uh, as they must be. For those who lived it, the opposite might actually be the case, or at least it seems to be here as Seed suggests. Indeed, the intellect, the will, must take over. And so, like she says, before and since all her effort was directed not on avoiding pain, but at getting through it as quickly as possible, to see the future was a matter of keeping the past at bay. Her ability to do so can be attributed to what it is, as Seath suggests in the midst of all of her past stories throughout the book, commonplace for slaves. Unlike many, Seath is allowed to get married, uh, all of her kids are born from the same man or husband. They get to play at family life, but once life at Sweet Home is shattered by the cruelty of school teacher and the boys, she comes to recognize what many others were forced to early on, the dangers of loving and of loving too much. Rather, the life of the slave requires an emotional restraint, loving just enough for practical purposes, but not too much because of the likely eminence of loss, of death, being sold, separation, so on. Paul D. recognizes this, and it might be Seed's downfall, something she didn't learn properly in her experience, despite the loss of her husband later on and some of her children. Kira Denver, her only one left, she holds onto fiercely. It's an interesting contradiction in the situation that her memory seems to bring about. But by the end of chapter 4, uh, it does leave a little bit of an opening to the future. Paul D. makes intentions known that while he's a runner, he's planning to stick around 124 with her. He recognizes that holding back love has always been done with the idea of having a little left over, which he can take advantage of here and somehow coax Denver into not feeling threatened by his presence. Not about choosing somebody over her, it's making space for somebody along with her. The end of chapter 4 is seeing Paul D. and Denver going to a local carnival. For a moment you get a temporary, even if it's a lesser, joy. And for a second, while we're very wrapped up in the psyche of Seed, we have to remember for a second that Denver's situation provides a full circle on that memory and forgetting concept. Denver, unlike everyone in and around Sweet Home, was never a slave and is living the effects of that entirely at second hand, though it's still very immediate. Because of whatever it was that Seed saw, was, or had done, Denver also lives in social isolation, but doesn't understand it, and cannot make sense of it through her own experience. She doesn't have the lessons, no matter how traumatic of the past, especially because Seed forgets them, in a sense, and so she's never shared in that ethical duty. In fact, she's in a way neglected her ethical duty to her daughter's historical memory here. And while she does it out of love and protection, it means Denver can't use it to make sense of her present or future, um, which has very directly impacted her. Paul D., though, and the inclusivity he shows her, at least here in the carnival scene, gives her a reason to favor or at least soften toward him for taking away the one way she's pretty much dealt with her loneliness, which for her has been the haunting of the house, the ghost baby, which for her was really her only other point of contact beyond Seath, which up until this point, because the ghost baby essentially disappears with Paul D.'s arrival, has been a point of deep resentment for Denver. 
Here, though, for the first time in her life, Denver's being greeted by other people, other real people, uh, which provides for her somewhat of a hope in the future beyond her current isolated state. And here, we return to the unknown citizen, which both Seed and Denver are, kind of, in a way. Here we are getting the detailed psychology behind a story taught about individuals who are classically not talked about, as slaves, objects of history, whose stories and songs have been generally trivialized in, like, minstrel shows and children's nursery rhyme songs. And especially with the depths of the psychology here, we're getting, in a way, the voices of the voiceless. But unlike the freedom, or lack thereof, of the man depicted in Auden's poem, the man of conformity whose choice is taken away from him by the need to conform socially for the sake of being able to gain reputational momentum, Beloved's discussion of freedom is on a whole different level. Yes, see this free, but she is not. While she is no longer a slave in the physical sense, she is a slave to the trauma and to her memory, and the freedom that Denver seems to ha have in having never physically been a slave, she's still touched by the isolation, the lack of freedom that comes with something her mother's done. And this is not something she can escape through any act of her own. She'll never be free of the past. Neither of them will, though in substantially different ways. Yet I think as we go forward in this one, we have to question whether all of Seed's current slavery is a product of the circumstances beyond her control, as she can always and consistently fall back on the idea that she's not responsible for her current lack of freedom, in a way, like J.S. of Auden's poem, who was himself given up freedom to pursue the will of societal acceptance, which is itself an activation of his own conscious choice, by the way, Seed also decides not to choose. She gives up her choice in the present to the past. We'll continue tracking this idea and see if we can prove it with evidence of her situation as we go. Thanks for listening today. Linked in the episode information, you'll find many of the resources discussed here today. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more of this kind of thing, subscribe and check back next week for the next installment in this series where I'll be discussing the next few chapters of Beloved in conjunction with some modern criticisms of American society and some more focus on the fantastical, surrealist aspects of the book and the ghost baby presence that metaphysically and metaphorically haunts Seed's present. I'm Stacey Cabrera and this is Fill in the Details. 